0: I want to begin by telling you uh, what I think is the main point, and the main point has something to do with how if we are to handle rightly a situation okay to to respond rightly to a situation, we need to have the right perspective okay to respond or to handle rightly a situation we need to have the right perspective so like I mean, if, you know, Sharona and Elliot are arguing, and then what I see is, you know, Sharona being bullied, for instance. Now, the way I respond to the situation would be to, you know, maybe scold Elliot or, you know, punish him. But if I don't have the right perspective, which may be that, you know, Sharona is trying to get her brother in trouble, uh, then I wouldn't have handled the situation rightly. Okay, so we need... The right perspective. So as we look at God's word here, let's, let's ask God that He would give us that right perspective. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we need your help. We would continue to be blind. We would continue to be short-sighted. We would continue to have the wrong perspective. And that's you in your kindness and grace. So open our eyes, so work in our hearts that we truly see, that you enable us to have the right perspective, that in whatever situation that uh, we find ourselves in, Father, you enable us to see it and to respond to it and to handle it rightly. We pray this for your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. So you see in your outline, I've divided it into three Three scenes, okay, and the first scene there in uh, verse 31 to 32, Jesus is betrayed, God is glorified. Now, I need to remind you of uh, how we came to this point. Remember, Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room, and Jesus, prior to verse 31, had just been telling and informing his disciples that there is a betrayer in their midst. And all this is in fulfillment of Scripture, and just before verse 31, Jesus tells Judas, who turns out to be the betrayer, you know, what you're about to do, do quickly. And Judas leaves, and John tells us it is night. Judas leaves into the night, into the darkness, because he is about to betray Jesus. And now Jesus is left with his 11 disciples. And it is here that the the what is commonly called the Upper Room Discourse, or more correctly, the Farewell Discourse. Because this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. And during this night, Jesus is going to take the opportunity to, in a most intimate way, in a most personal way, share and instruct His disciples. Okay, So this will take us all the way to uh, John 17, which we will cover in our series sometime next year. So, you know, watch out for that. So this is the last of our series in John. Um, we will continue on with the farewell discourse uh, next year. So we say farewell to the farewell discourse here. Uh, but Jesus is left with his 11 disciples. And what we read in verse 31 onwards is his first words to his his little flock, the true his true disciples, because the betrayer had already left. And you need to know that in verse 31, there is a word missing. Okay, and the word missing is therefore. So the actual uh, text reads, when therefore he was gone, when therefore Judas left, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. So what is the connection between Judas leaving because John makes clear that there is a connection because Jesus says because he says therefore right? what is the connection between Judas leaving and God's glory? Well, Judas leaving, his going out, sets the gears in motion. The gears in motion that will lead to the arrest, the false trial, and the eventual crucifixion of Jesus. That's what is meant by Judas leaving. And so the, the moment of Jesus and God's greatest glorification is at the cross. Because Judas leaving will lead inevitably to the cross. And so the moment of Jesus and God's greatest glorification is at the cross. Now when we, when we mention the cross, we we like the cross, right? I mean, we as in we like it in that you know some of us wear it as earrings or you know necklaces. We have it artistically done on T-shirts. Some of us have it on bumper stickers, you know, posters on the wall, you know, wooden crosses on the door, this and that. I mean, we like the cross. We don't mind displaying it uh, on our body and on our car. But you need to remember that in the first century. The cross is associated. The cross is the embodiment of shame. The cross is the height of, of humiliation. The cross is the, is the, the sign of weakness. And so, I mean, Jesus is telling us that it's there at that cross that God's greatest glory is shown. And why? How? Now, you need to remember what is the meaning of uh, glory and glorified. I mean, God's glory is the sum total of all that He is. All that God is, you can represent with the word uh, His glory. And so, to to glorify God, it cannot be to add to that, because He is already inherently all that He is. You can't add to it or take away from it. So, to glorify God is to make that glory known, is to reveal who this God is more clearly, so that people see it more truly and profoundly. So to glorify God, it's a a display of that glory. It's a revealing of God. And so it is at the cross, Jesus tells us, that we would see the greatest display of who Jesus truly is. Right now, the Son of Man is glorified. And this is uh, Jesus' favorite way of talking about himself, that he is the Son of Man. Now you would think that he would be most glorified at the baptism. When the spirit comes down on him like a dove, you know, when a voice from heaven declares, you, know, you are my son in whom you know, I am well pleased. Or you might think that his greatest moment of glory is when he goes, Shh, and then the raging sea Shh, comes down. Or when he gloriously feeds 5,000, or when he gloriously raises Lazarus. But no, instead he declares, it is as he hangs there on the cross, maybe even naked, bleeding after being flogged. What everyone would associate with shame and humiliation and weakness, he tells us that is his supreme moment of revelation, of display of who he really is, what he's really on about. And not only that, at the cross, God is glorified in him. God the Father is also glorified in the death of the Son. It is at the cross that the wisdom of God is most profoundly revealed, that that God in His wisdom should, before the creation of the world, so fashion a plan that would result in Him not only being just, not only acting righteously, but acting righteously in making those who are unrighteous, righteous. That at the cross we would see the, the, the holiness of God. That He is so holy that sin is such, a, such an atrocity to Him that it needs to be punished in this way. At the cross we would see the, the mercy and the love and the grace of God most supremely revealed. That this is a God who so loves us that He would give His only Son, His Son's life as a sacrifice, as a substitute, in order to redeem His people back to Himself. At the cross, we see the power of God. That God, by this one act, can reverse lifetimes of of humanity sinning and and rebelling against Him, that, that in this one act, the consequences of the fall could be so drastically reversed. We see the triumph of God over death, over sin, over Satan in the cross. So, in verse 32... Jesus tells us the, the third thing that the cross will display. He says, if God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself and will glorify Him at once. Now, I think the best way to understand this is to get you to turn to chapter 17 and verse 4 and 5. So, chapter 17 is uh, the end of the farewell discourse, and here Jesus is praying to God the Father. And he says in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, you see, in his in own way, it sounds like verse 31, right? Jesus saying, I have brought you glory. Like he says He says it as if the work is finished. Right? Of course, it hasn't happened because it's still the night before. But it is so certain that it will happen that Jesus can speak of it as being finished. Right? So that's what he means. I, I, I have brought you glory. Okay? And then verse 5 corresponds to verse 32. Verse 5, Jesus prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So you see, God's glory, God the Father's glory is revealed in the Son's saving death. In the Son going to the cross and all that he accomplished there. And now Jesus is praying, "Now that I brought you glory there, glorify me, bring me back to the glory that I had with you." And so the Son dies to accomplish God's purpose. And God in turn will glorify the Son by by bringing Him back from the dead, raising Him from the dead again. And not only that, but Jesus will also ascend to the right hand of God and be where He was before, at the right hand of God for all eternity. So the Father will vindicate. The Father will declare, yes, this Work of my son, I am pleased. I have, I have accepted his payment on behalf of sinful humanity. You see, on the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And God will glorify the son by raising him to life again, ascending him back to where he is. And that is God's way of saying, Amen to Christ. It is finished. So you see, on the cross, Jesus and God are glorified. And as a result of the cross, because of what he has accomplished, Jesus would be vindicated. Jesus would be exalted. He would rise up. He would be seated at the Father's right hand. So you see here, at this moment when Judas leaves, when Jesus is betrayed, only with the right perspective to see that the, the betrayal of Judas actually leads to the cross, and the cross is actually God and Jesus' greatest, most supreme moment of glorification, of self display, of revelation. The right perspective allows us to respond to this situation correctly. Jesus is betrayed, but it actually leads. To the greatest display of God's glory. Now we move on to the next scene, and Jesus tells them that he is leaving, and he gives them the command to love one another. And Jesus moves on in verse 33 to talk about his leaving, because the way to the cross you know, must involve his departure, must involve his leaving the disciples. His departure is imminent. So he says in verse 33, "My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now: where I am going, you cannot come." Okay. So he 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 tells them he is going to leave, and what he's going to tell them next is what he wants them to be doing, what he wants them to be focused on while he is gone, while he is away from them. And so he says, verse 34, okay, While I am gone, while I have departed, while I am not with you, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, why does Jesus say that this is a a new command? I mean, we, we, we see it before in the Bible, right? You know, love the Lord your God. You know, in Leviticus it says, love your neighbor as yourself. So in, in what way is this new? Well, it's new in the sense of its object. It's new in the sense of the audience, the target audience, who we are to love. In the Old Testament, it's to love your neighbor. So talking to the Jews, love their neighbor, it's, you know the Jewish neighbors, each other. But here is to love one another. Now, when Jesus first says it to his disciples, it's the 11 of them. But the 11 of these disciples represent God's new covenant community, God's, God's new people, the, the, the people that He will win and redeem for himself through this new covenant that He will make with His people. These 11 disciples represent the body of Christ and represent the church, and so the one another is no longer you know, my Jewish neighbor, you know, defined by ethnicity, the people of God. Uh, Because we are Jews, we are the people of God. But it is the members of God's new people. The new people who come from different races, right? black, white, yellow, brown, orange. Uh, People who come from different social strata. People with different lights, people with different ways of doing things. Uh, you know, people of uh, different generation, you know, people who are old school, people who are new school, people from different educational background, you know, whether you're poly or uni or ITE or, you know, you're homeschooled. You know, whatever it is, love one another. Right? It is the new, uh, new target, new object of that love. We are to love One another. And the other thing that is new is that Jesus gives them a new standard. There's a new extent of this love. right? In the Old Testament, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it is already hard, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. But here Jesus raises the bar, gives them a new standard. It is, as I have loved you. That is the extent. The way, the extent... Of how Jesus has loved us, that is to be our model, our example of how we are to love one another. We are to love as Jesus has loved us. And He has loved us through His self-sacrificial giving of Himself for our greatest good. Right, back there in the beginning of uh, chapter 13, He already said, I mean, John already told us, He showed them the full extent of His love. And what he proceeded to do was to wash the disciples' feet. But the the washing of feet was an acted parable, pointing ahead to to how he would serve them, self-sacrificially, humbly, going so lowly down that they may have life through his death. And so, Christian love is not about the emotions. It's not whether we click. You know, we are the same taste, we are kindred spirit, or, you know, I have this great emotion for you. No, no, it's nothing about that. It is about self-sacrifice. It is about self-sacrificial giving. It is about your interest over my interest. It is about obedience to Christ. It is about following His example. And so, I must ask ourselves, right, do we love this way? In this In this body of Christ, this local church, the people who are, who belong to God's new covenant community, people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, do we love one another this way? Is there, is there a self-sacrificial, you know, concern for the other person's interests, the other person's good, his, his growth or her growth in Christ? Or are we more often just leveraging what's best for my interests? Is there, is there a building up? Is there a concern to see people grow and, and being found more and more mature in Christ? Is there a building up or is there instead a tearing down? You know, a tearing down with our words, with our, with our gossiping, with our slander. You know, when, when people, wrong us you know do we talk to them about it out of love you know brother i think you have sinned against me and then this is how you know speaking the truth in love or do we instead gossip and tell everyone else about it you know and make it sound like a prayer request you know oh please pray for me i've been hurt by this guy but it's actually a gossip session and 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 and, and when the person that you confront says Ah, okay yes yes i i i I see how I have, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. And where there is repentance, when there's asking for forgiveness, is there, you know, that that loving act of giving, offering forgiveness? Or is there, you know, bitterness and resentment nurtured such that, you know, we can't even be in the same church. One of us has to go, right? Is there this love in our midst? Because this is, this is the command that Jesus says, when I'm away, okay? The perspective you must have of each other that is you must love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, okay? He gives the world permission to rebuke us. Because he says verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So he is saying, if you have this sort of love, the presence of such love confirms that you are an authentic follower of Jesus. That's what he's saying. If you have this love, it confirms you are an authentic follower of Jesus, which means the absence of such love. Throws into doubt whether you are a true disciple of Jesus. And you see, it's not just, you know, the bishop who comes and says, okay, okay, yes, I think member A and member B, you know, know, there's the absence of this love, you know, the bishop, you know, or the pastor makes this judgment. No, he says, everyone, which means even the unbelieving, pagan, atheistic world, if they come to you and say, hey, I, I really doubt you know, that you're a Christian, you know, your attitude like that. Now, you might get upset, you might get angry, but in verse 35, Jesus, in a sense, has given them the right to say something like that. And you see, I mean, what Jesus is asking us to do, right, The the... This this characteristic, this mark that would confirm that you know, whether we are truly disciples of not uh, of Jesus or not, you know, having this sort of love, this sort of self-sacrificial love for one another, I mean, is for one of a better word, it is something supernatural. I mean, you, it's not something that, you know, you can just grit your teeth, you know, by the power of your own, you know, self-determination, generate this sort of love. No, when you see someone loving like that, you know that person has been loved by God, that person is filled and has the Spirit of God dwelling in him. That's why he can love this way. That person has been born of God, the God who is love. There must be something that is unexplainable about our love for one another, except for the fact that we are new people, new creation. We have the Spirit of God in us. And so, so many people deceive themselves. So many people believe the lie that just because they attended a membership class Just because they got some water sprinkled on them or they were fully immersed or whatever, or they signed onto something, you know, they stood here and they said certain words and they said yes, 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 and we said certain words to them. They were, you know, or they were born in a Christian family. So many people believe that just because they've done that, that they are truly followers of Jesus. But I tell you, there's nothing supernatural about that. Anyone. You can do all of those things in the flesh. Simply coming to church regularly. It's something you can do in the flesh. There's nothing supernatural about that. But this, what Jesus is saying here. Only someone who is born again, only someone that has experienced the saving love of God displayed in his son's death on his behalf. Only someone who knows that love personally, experientially for himself can love this way. That's why Jesus says, this is the authenticating mark whether you are truly my disciples or not. And so, how to have such love? Right, I mean there's there's no point really. I can you know I can stand here and keep going on about okay you must love, you must love, you know, you are not a disciple if you don't love you and that will do nothing. Right? The only way to have such love is to have the right perspective, to see and to focus in on how you have been loved that you in in all of your actions and thoughts and words you were raising your puny fist against your creator and saying to him get lost okay the world doesn't revolve around you it revolves around me and the whole of your life you were doing this even in your best moments it was tainted with sin and yet this God who is holy, holy, holy sent his son and in the supreme display of his love his son dies as a sacrifice as your substitute. He dies on that gruesome cross to save you. And it's only as we focus in on that only as we as we as we look And consider the cross. To consider the amazing love displayed at the cross. That's the that's the inner motivation. That's the that's that's how God enables us. That's how God empowers us. As we see, the God who made me, the God who is my 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 ruler. Jesus, who is my Lord, there was no limit. This this was the extent of His love. How can I now put a limit on my love for someone else that He has redeemed by His precious blood? So to handle, to react rightly to this situation, we must have the right perspective. We must keep the cross central in our thinking, in our eyes, in our heart. Now, we will we will not love perfectly, right? We will not love perfectly. There is no one here who will consistently perfectly love this way. Uh, which is why I'm so thankful that uh, Simon Peter says what he says next. Okay, because the next scene is Jesus is denied. A place is prepared. So because Jesus speaks about his leaving, you see what verse 36 Simon Peter says. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> do, you, okay, do you see that? Jesus has just given his disciples, okay? The, the the his first words to his to his little flock, the new people of God, the first command. Okay? I mean, such a lofty, such a grand command. But Peter completely ignores it, right? We forget about that. Where are you going, Lord? And so Jesus tells him, where I am going, you cannot follow now. Okay, because only Jesus can go and do that cross work. But he tells him, but you will follow later. Because as a result of Jesus' work, uh, Peter that the the people of God will be able to be with where Jesus is. And then verse 37, Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Okay, you see see what Peter says. You see how he completely does not get it. First, Jesus gives this command, which he completely ignores. Okay, and then he tells Jesus, okay now, I mean, in the original Greek, I will, it, it, it reads more like this. I will lay down my life on your behalf. That's the significance of the word for there. I will lay down my life on your behalf. He does not get it. That's why Jesus says in verse 38, Will you really, and he uses the same words that Peter says, Will you really lay down your life on my behalf? And then Jesus proceeds to give Peter a right view of himself. Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. See, it is not about what we do for Jesus. It is definitely not about us laying down our life on his behalf. Peter completely does not understand his need. That what he needs is for Jesus to lay down his life on his behalf. Because Peter is a sinner. Peter will fail. Peter will disown Jesus. Peter will deny Jesus just like you and me. What Peter needs and what we need to understand is that we need Jesus to lay down his life on our behalf. Now he goes on to say here in verse one of chapter fourteen, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now you go to enough Christian funerals, you will hear this quoted at Christian funerals, but okay, but I, I, I plead with you now, okay. Look. Okay, look at the passage. Why does Jesus say this at this point? Okay, if it helps. Remove the big number one four from your mind, okay? Uh, John didn't put it there. Okay, remove the big fourteen there. What? Why are they troubled? That Jesus needs to say to them, don't don't be troubled. Okay, they they at the moment they are troubled, and he says to them, stop being troubled. But why why are they troubled? Okay, they are troubled because uh, Jesus has informed them he's going to leave. Okay. Yeah, he's going to be away from them. So of course, they're going to be troubled. Uh, of course, they're going to be, they're going to be troubled because Jesus has already told them there's a betrayer in the midst. But do you see that they are also troubled because Jesus has just informed them that Peter, the, the, the leader, the most zealous of the disciples, that, that Peter will disown Jesus. And three times, even before the rooster crows. Peter is going to fail. And so they are troubled. And that's why Jesus says, do not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Now those of you More familiar with uh, other translations. Uh, We know that uh, older translations translated as, My father's house has many mansions. Okay, which which has led to many songs and hymns, and I know people thinking about, ah, yeah, you know, now I live in HDB flat, but, you know, I am going to persevere with Christ, but when I get to heaven, wow, I'm going to get my mansion with a sea view. And, you know, pastors will get, uh, we get a better view, that sort of thing, you know. Uh, then there'll be more cars in the garage, you know. It has led to all this sort of um, um, idolatrous thoughts, in a way. But the word mention, uh, the, the reason why it appears in the English translation is because it was first translated uh, in the Latin mansions, okay? And when they when they when they made the first English translation. They they used the the Latin word uh, and incorporated it into uh, the the English translation, but the, the 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 root of that Latin word doesn't mean this you know big house you know with uh, you know floor to ceiling windows it doesn't mean that it simply means an abode a dwelling place so Jesus is actually saying in my Father's house there are many many dwelling places there's there's a lot of room the the word you should be fixated on is not mansions but the word many there's room for many there's room there's, there's there is at the father's house many dwelling places and Jesus says i go and prepare a place for you now you know because related to the word mansion Oh, we think Jesus is—you know—he was a carpenter, so now he's going to the mansion and he's going to make my, you know, my 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 wooden kitchen cabinet. You know, wow, you know, he's uh, the the heavenly contractor, right? You know, we have that—we have a that view of Jesus, you know, erecting projects and you know skyscrapers and mansions for us. But in what way does he actually prepare a place? For us, How is He going to prepare a place for us? What has just happened is that He has just told Peter, You're going to fail me. You're going to disown me. You're going to deny me three times. Just based on your commitment alone, you can't make it. You will fail. You will disappoint me. But do not let your hearts be troubled. I go. And how does he go? He goes by way of the cross. You see, he's talking about his leaving. And he's leaving to go back to the Father. But the way back to the Father is by the way of the cross. And so the way that he prepares a place is how at the cross, through the cross, because of the cross, it will accomplish the perfection, the resurrection bodies of his new people. That's how he prepares the place for them. Jesus, with a word, created the whole universe. He doesn't need 2,000 years to be erecting mansions for us. No, no. It is by His cross work that He prepares us to be able to inhabit, to be in the presence of God, His Father. That's why He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. So you see, in the face of denial, in the face of failure before Jesus, we must have the right perspective. That it is not what I do, but it is what Jesus has done for me. It is Jesus who prepares a place in the Father's presence for us. So to handle, to react to a situation rightly, we must have the right perspective. And do you see that in, in these three scenes, at the heart, central to that perspective must be the cross. Central to that perspective must be the gospel. The cross, the gospel must be our preoccupation. It must be our obsession. See, it must be the gospel that informs and empowers all that we do. All that we do here as a church, uh, what we do in our families, what we do at work, what we do at play. See, the gospel must be at the heart of this church. This must be a gospel-centered church because it is so easy for, for a local church to be focused, to have at, at its center something other than what is most important. And you see, by, 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 by saying that the gospel must be central, by saying that the gospel must be at the heart of all that we do, the gospel must be must be the thing that empowers, that informs. We are not asking the gospel to do something it cannot do. Only the gospel can take the weight of being in the center. Because it is the center of God's purposes. It is at the cross in the gospel that God is most supremely displayed, His power, His love, His mercy. And we must never tire. We must, we must be very cautious of becoming too familiar with the gospel. Because till the day we die, or till the day Jesus returns, the gospel must be the main doctrine that we give ourselves to. We must keep studying the gospel. We must keep meditating on the gospel. We must keep praying and living in light of the gospel. The gospel must be the main thing that you hear proclaimed from this pulpit. Okay, I say to you, if the gospel ceases to be the main thing proclaimed from here, then get rid of the person who is here because he is not serving you the right way. And if you are now thinking... So focused on the gospel. I mean, spend all my life studying the gospel. I mean, isn't the gospel a simple message, you know, two ways to live, four spiritual laws? Okay, if you're thinking that, then let me tell you, that is already an indication that you do not fully or profoundly grasp the gospel. Because to the day you die, I promise you, you will never be able to plumb the depths of the gospel. The right perspective is needed to handle reality rightly. And at the heart of our perspective, of this right perspective, must be the gospel. If the glory of God is revealed most clearly at the cross, then the cross must be what? must be our, our all-consuming passion to study, to meditate, to pray, to live on. And may God help us to do that. Amen.